Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. been I can only say a hell of a year in sport in many different ways not only from the drama and the controversies around sport but also in some of the the beauty of the sport most recently of course the football world cup which was uh, quite spectacular in my opinion and and uh, to kind of wrap up the year we've got um, as usual professor Ross Tucker who's going to be talking to us all the way from the UK at the moment where he's having a bit of a holiday in the freezing cold and just down the road from him, Sean Ingle, who's the chief sports writer for The Guardian, uh, who is always considered as a sort of third member of our podcasting crew. Um, and uh, he's going to kind of he's, he's the great thing, Sean, is that you've been to many of the events. In fact, all the events that we've wanted to go to. And uh, finally, we're catching you at home. It must be nice just to be home for a change after a, a lot of you of traveling. Yeah, it's been a busy one, starting with the Winter Olympics in Beijing when we weren't allowed out of our compound. And there was sort of armed security and a 10 foot fence to keep us away from uh, the ordinary Chinese population, you know, right through to a busy summer with the World Athletics, Commonwealth Games, European Champs, Wimbledon, and then uh, then more recently the World Cup in Qatar. So it's been a busy one. It almost feels like when you look at a year ahead, you know, you see the highlights and you look at the Olympics and the the World Cup football every year. It's, it's sort of every four years. But every year there seems to be more big events you know events seem to be get bigger and larger and more important and this year kind of it's all culminated really in 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 a year probably the fullest year i've can remember in sport for a long time would you agree sean well i think um covid had a little bit to do with that because you had yeah. the world athletics championships pushed in to 2022 and the women's euro soccer uh the same but yeah no it was an extraordinary year in in, in many different ways on and off off the track I feel like I, I have less capacity to absorb it all as I get older though. Yes. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's one of those where when I was younger, I could take in all the sport. I couldn't even, when we were talking to Sean before coming on, I didn't even remember the Winter Olympics that happened, never mind what happened <laughs> at them. And I remember at the time I was immersed in it. I loved watching it. But now it's like I have this end of year amnesia that I don't even know it happened. And next year I'm sure will be the same. I guess, It's also the same. I guess the Winter Olympics for us, in South Africa, less relevant, so probably not on our radar as much. But also, as you mentioned, the Commonwealth Games, you know, a major sporting event, which kind of almost was, you know, down the rankings of all the other events that were happening around the world. So, yeah, a very, very busy year where any of those events in a single year without it being so busy would be, you know, ranked as the, the top sort of three stories of the year. So, yeah, very busy. So let, let's kick things off a little bit. I want to kick off with Ross. Uh, as usual, we don't we don't like to discuss it, but there has been very much an entertaining element to this element of sports and sports science. And that is the doping cheating stuff that's gone on this year. Of course, there's been the usual doping scandals, but there's also been a lot of uh, cheating scandals as well this year. And we're going to talk a little bit about what happens, what's happened in chess, 
We've even got a fishing story where there was um, a cheating scandal in fishing as well, which is absolutely remarkable. But I mean, Ross, one thing that never seems to go away in the area of professional sports is that people are always looking to try and find a way to win, even if it's not the right way. Yeah, and 2022 is the year where we, I think, ourselves on this podcast started to make fun of it a little bit because we could. Because <laughs> if you didn't, I don't think you'd watch much because you have to be able to set it aside. And then the next step after that is to laugh at some of it. And when when you learn about stories of anglers sticking lead weights and fish fillets into their fish and uh, vibrating anal beads, which we got from Sean. <laughs> well, we, we didn't get the beads from Sean. We got the stories. <laughs> we got <laughs> we got most recently a South African who somehow managed to cheat Zwift in, in a way not like you see normally where a guy passes you at nine wants a kilo because he pretends he weighs 21 kilograms. Um, and there've been, there've been some crazy cheating scandals in sport this year, but then behind all that, of course, at the very top level where things get serious, there's the same old things, you know, it's a different year, but the same story. We, we spoke recently about Kenya uh, who now have easily reached a half century of doping suspensions. I saw another few announced this morning, actually, before coming on. We have issues in cycling. There's a fairly good piece. I'll post the links in the show notes here as well um, that was published on Cycling Weekly called If Pro Cycling is Now Clean, Why Do Records Set by Dopers Keep On Getting Broken? And it's a debate about the influence of tech versus doping and where exactly is anti-doping in this race against the dopers. So this stuff's all going on. And we're none the wiser, you know, that's, that's why we kind of haven't covered it. Right. Cause I mean, if I knew mm. what it was, I'd be the first person shouting and telling people, but I don't know what's happening. Mm. And, and as you say, Ross, all the time, the problem with the, the situation, whether you are one that sees the glass half full, in other words, that, you know, we're winning the war versus those that see the glass half empty. In other words, we're losing the war is that it, no matter if you have an extraordinary performance, there's always these question marks that are over the head of a good performance. So we, we're almost become blasé, well, not blasé, kind of very cynical about good performances because of this constant worry that there is something else involved. Yeah, you have no choice. And then your cynicism doesn't have a place to go though either. And again, there's the, the shoes have confounded the performance anyway. So you can yeah. sort of accommodate a 1% to 3% improvement in times caused by the shoe. So you see an athlete go from... 228 to 221 on the woman's side or a, a 207 guy suddenly running a 203 and you say all oh, right is that a super responder four percent because of shoes mm. is it one percent shoes and three percent doping who knows no one so you mm. you kind of just watch it and say well let's hope but it's just yeah. hope not knowledge and that's the problem would you agree that it's a story that's kind of hit the headlines in the latter half of the year, but the situation around Kenyan athletics and the threat of their being banned from world athletics, would you say that's the, the biggest story in doping this year and potentially um, will be next year? I, I, well, I would go with um, uh, Kamilia Valieva, the Russian skater. Remember, she's only 15. She passed test positive, uh, well, before the, the Olympics, but it was only unearthed during the Olympics. And yet she's allowed to compete in the, the blue ribbon event, the women's figure skating. She's the favorite. She's this, um, she, she's christened as Miss Perfect. Now, a little sort of story, inside story for you. Uh, I was with two English journalists at the start of the, the Winter Olympics that were writing about Valieva. And they both thought they'd read somewhere that she was known as Miss Perfect. So they'd wrote that in their copy. 
and uh, by the end, everyone was referring to as Miss Perfect. And, and when they looked back to try and find it, they couldn't. Um, so anyway, this this Miss Perfect was made up by these two English journalists. But regardless, you know, she's the world's best skater, the first woman to perform a quad at the Winter Olympics. She's only 15, and yet she tests positive. I mean, for me, that was the most extraordinary story. And then she's allowed to compete by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And then when the pressure's the most intense, she falls, she's in floods of tears, and her coach is berating her afterwards. It was just the most extraordinary thing. And this was the backdrop, of course. We were days away from uh, Russia invading Ukraine, which we mm. all expected was going to happen, and it did. Um, I mean, that Winter Olympics was extraordinary. It was known as a genocide games by by many. Um, but yeah, going back to, to Kenya, clearly it's a, a huge story. I remember in 2015, uh, if memory serves, Kenya topped the medal table at the World Athletic Champs. And we were all, all asked to write pieces. Why is this happening? And he'd speak to various people and they'd all come up with, you know, various theories. But in uh, you, it's hard now to ignore the fact that, you know, doping um, was prevalent in Kenya and not enough was being done about it then. Um, where I think perhaps there is some form of mild optimism, you look at what the Athletics Integrity Unit has done. It, it has caught a number of cheats, which... Um, you know, I think has put other sports to shame. And I don't think what they're doing is anything revolutionary. I mean, I, I know a few of the guys at the AIU. Mm. What they're doing is using intelligence. They are testing at times of the, the day where, you know, if someone has microdosed late at night, they might be able to catch them at, at six in the morning. Even if they don't catch them, when they knock on their door, it, you know, the, the athlete may not answer. So they're not, you know, they haven't discovered any groundbreaking new technology. But what they are doing is 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 actually trying to catch the cheats which is more than a lot of sports. Do you know, Sean, what proportion of the AIU's resources, staff, finances, and so on are being directed towards Kenya as opposed to other places? Because just, and this, is, this I suppose, goes to the structure of anti-doping, because a place like, let's, let's say, Italy, UK, Spain, even South Africa, USA, most anti-doping is delivered by their national anti-doping organization. Kenya's is largely being delivered for now by the AIU and WADA, I suppose, because theirs is not resourced enough to do it. So the AIU's, maybe because they're independent, has uncovered the extent of doping or partly uncovered the extent of doping in Kenya. When I have this nagging feeling that, like, the only reason it's not known around the world is because no one independent is looking hard enough. That's the cynic again, though. So do, do we know how much of the AIU is in Kenya compared to other places? We don't, but the fact um, the uh, well, well, World Athletics has recently got the Kenyan government to 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 give them a bunch of money to, mm. to funnel to the AIU suggests it's a, a significant amount. But I don't, I, I know I've not seen any figures uh, from the AIU, and they probably wouldn't say, but it, but it must be significant given the numbers. Um, they are, you know, they they have they have found or you know have, have convicted in the last sort of three four years. You know, it must mm. be significant. Mm. I guess next year it's probably going to be, if not the big story, it potentially could be the big story unless, as the Kenyan government have promised, that they are going to be more strict in terms of finding and uncovering potentially drug cheats in Kenya. But again, the question is, is it coming from the federation? Is it coming from the government? I mean, if you look at the Russian situation, obviously we we know that governments can get involved in helping their athletes perform because it's good PR for the country, isn't it, Ross? Yeah, and I don't, I don't think the doping in Kenya is coming from the government. I think the government is passive mm. and not maybe looking to stop it from happening or incapable of doing it. But I, 
I don't know. My impression of Kenya has always been that it's uh, it's set up a little bit differently and that you've got camps, agents, coaches who work in smaller groups, more elusive groups potentially than than in in the systematic systems that we see on, saw in Russia. I don't know whether Sean's got any insights from his contacts at the AIU, but it, I, I get the impression that it's a little uh, more cellular, if, if that mm. makes sense. No, I would I would agree with that. Um, I I spoke to Seb Co last week, and there was there was no sense that they wanted to ban Kenya as a whole. I think Co regards them as an important athletics nation. You know, he he ran against Kenyans when he was um, you know in his prime, and he and he likes the country a lot. Mm. Um, however, there comes a point when you are getting so many athletes banned uh i mean i've spoken to, to other coaches coaches particularly in britain who are like hang on a second this is unfair mm. you know yes it may not be state sponsored but if they're looking the other way or they're not doing up about it you know my athlete is potentially going up against someone that's you know better than them because they're cheating and so i think certainly within the sport there is a lot of frustration and and, and anger even that that this has been allowed to go on for so long um, I would say, I mean, there are obviously some incredible um, Kenyan athletes, and I've been to Eton a couple of times up in the up in the Rift Valley, and you see school kids that are maybe seven, eight, nine, and they're bombing along at the sort of pace that would 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 make me you know make me have a heart attack. So that you know, I'm not saying there aren't incredible athletes up there, but um, but but clearly there there was a situation going on for t- for too long, and nothing was resolved. Well, yeah. that's the excuse me. <clears throat> one of the unfortunate things about it is that the the doping tarnishes the really incredible physiology. I mean, last time on the pod, Mike and I spoke about it and like my, my interest in sports sciences is in part in in large part, actually driven by the interest in the physiological phenomenon of Kenyan distance running. And I studied it and have published papers on it. And we, we brought 16 relatively good. I mean, we couldn't get, we couldn't get the Kipchoge Martin Lull level guys, obviously out to South Africa, but the, the next year, group of guys who'd gone and win the Istanbul half marathon, the Philadelphia half marathon and so on. And we tested them and they, they really are fascinating runners and their, their personality, their psychology, everything about them is so interesting. But now the doping has tarnished it all. And we, we're so binary now, it's just, it's just doping. Well, it's not just doping. There still are remarkable athletes and the density of amazing distance runners in Kenya is incredible. But if they are, not they, if some of them are, two to four percent better even one percent better because of doping that's a minute to a minute and a half in a marathon and that's the difference between being unknown and being a second to a marathon top five never mind maybe even winner so i think what what will be really interesting is if anyone is doing an analysis and it'd be cool if the aiu did this because it would be almost like a scorecard of their efforts is what, what's the average time of the top 500 Kenyans, men and women in the last three, four years? And if that doesn't get slower, then one of two things must be happening. Either the doping doesn't work or the anti-doping isn't working. Yeah. So which is it? So you'd expect that they must slow down is the point. And so yeah. well, that, that will be really interesting. I, I wouldn't know where to find these times, but if, if I could, it would be a really interesting analysis. And I guess, and I guess almost, it's, oh, yeah, Karen Sean, Karen Sean. No, I was just saying almost anecdotally, though, being in Diamond League meetings and World Athletics Championship events, that the, the fields don't seem to be dominated quite as much mm. 
uh, by Kenyans in the last, you know, three, three, four years would be. Yeah, and you said it. Twenty. When were they top? Twenty fifteen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's definitely the case. And so then, then, and then the interesting secondary hypothesis is where do the medals then go? And they'll move to Ethiopia because no one's looking hard enough there. <laughs> it's terribly simple, <laughs> but that's where it's going to go. And that's that's the history of sport, right? Is anti-doping chasing doping around the world, and that's where the medals go to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite as cynical, Russ. <laughs> um, just just on a on a completely different tack. I'm sure this is a good one for you because you we discussed it with you when it happened. But probably one of the most remarkable stories was the the chess cheating controversy between uh, this guy called Hans Niemann and uh, and and the grandmaster Magnus Carlsen. Now they were playing online chess, and Niemann was accused of cheating using all sorts of bots and that sort of thing. Now there's all sorts of um, lawsuits flying around at chess.com. I mean, what, what, what's the latest with that? And, and how would you rate that as a, as, a, as a cheating story of the year? No, it is up there. I mean, it actually happened in over the board play that um, Carlson lost and then sort of withdrew from uh, uh, the prestigious uh, Singfield Cup in America. Then in a week later or two weeks later, he refused to play online. And, and, and I mean, it, it's ongoing. Uh, Carlson is you know is being sued along with 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 others for 400 million dollars uh he's said it's ridiculous um there is the world rapid and blitz championship um in kazakhstan ne next week uh just after christmas and um both carlson and neiman will be there so it's not impossible they they face each other and i think if they do i think carlson will forfeit again he won't he'll refuse to play huh. him and um, i think part of it that before the Sinfield cup there's some video of Carlson playing Neiman um, on a beach and Carlson is sort of just smashing him, beats him easily. So I think in his head, regardless of whether Neiman cheated or did not cheat in that, that game, Carlson just thought, well, this guy's useless. And then so when he lost to him, you know, he that's perhaps where, where it come from. And then, of course, there was there was evidence that Neiman did cheat as, 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 when he was younger, although he denies cheating recently. By playing I mean, on a beach, do you mean in an event, or were they just mates like set they, up? They were just yeah. There was just a sort of day before the event. They were they were playing just some casual games, and Neiman played these strange lines, and Carlson just went boom, 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 boom. I'm much better now. So um, uh, perhaps that's the the root of some of the um, Carlson's suspicions. And and the it's one hundred million dollar lawsuit is that is that still was is that that looked like it sounded to me like a way amplified figure. Um, almost like yeah, a stop, it's, it's, stop making it's your relations to it yeah it's still rumbling on but um all the parties involved certainly they've been sued or rejecting any, any wrongdoing and are saying they're going to fight it so uh, huh. i always think it's quite amusing if you look at pictures of uh hans Niemann. i mean he's 19 years old and he's kind of this very cocky uh, looking sort of bushy haired guy so he's he's kind of he, he is a bit of an anti-hero to some extent because he, he looks like this cheeky guy who's taking on the establishment and he he has as you said he has been a proven cheat before even though he's denying it now so i guess if they do play each other in the next couple of weeks it's going to be probably one of the most watched games i mean can you watch that sort of stuff online you can indeed yeah there's websites yeah. like uh, chess.com chess 24 that will be showing it live with commentary so yeah there's plenty of plenty of chance to see and i think i think <laughs> the uh the world rapid um uh, segment it's a three-day thing it starts uh, on on boxing day so december the 26th for american uh, listeners is the uh, chess well, community like if you're at an event now is the, is the chess community split by this thing or are they largely 
uh, silent on it, or are they actually all on the side of, say, Carlson? Um, I, I think they they are split, uh, and I, I I do I do speak to a number of people. I think there is the the side that thinks Neiman is cheating. He may not have cheated in this instant, but um, you know, it's a, what it's, they regard it as very similar to, say, you and I would regard athletics. You know, mm. you've cheated a couple of times before sort of because there's no sort of overall body that processes these things especially online he sort of got away with it a bit um but there's the other side that sort of think well carlson has made this accusation which is so serious and or no over the board chest and hasn't got the evidence to back it up and they think it's him almost throwing his weight around as the world champion so um yeah no they, they are split hmm. and just to remind listeners i mean when you talk <coughs> about um over the board games how do you cheat in over the board games i think you're talking about people being in the audience and that sort of thing yeah yeah there's been a couple of cases where people have uh, been banned one um there was a latvian grandmaster who uh you know late on in his career i think he was in his 50s when you know as we all know you decline you know your cognitive abilities decline with age he was suddenly started shooting up the rankings and people thought this is this is a very strange and uh at one tournament they uh installed a, a camera overhead in the toilet and you know, when there was a really tr- you know, tricky part of the game, they would see this grandmaster come in, uh, go to where the, the, the toilet paper um, rack was, and he basically taped it inside and he would get his phone out and then go to a, a chess computer and uh, and then look at the right move and play it. So that's how he caught him. <laughs> there was another case with the French team at the 2010 Chess Olympiad where it's quite a complicated system, but... Um, uh, there'd be there'd be a grandmaster online watching the game with the computer analysis, and he would then communicate to somebody else in the room, who would then stand um, at a table to signify, kind of a, a position on the board. So there's all sorts of ways of doing it, and and the latest theory, which has got no evidence in in, in fact, was that, that, that somewhat Neiman may have cheated using um, anal breeds that vibrated whenever there was a a key a key move to be played. <laughs> and I've spoken to very good players, and they say that. Most of the time, if you know there's a killer move on the board, mm. even if it's not obvious, if you get some sort of signal, you know, a vibration, a, a nod or a wink, you can then find that move. So that's how, you know, you could potentially cheat that way. Yeah, I remember you saying that. And that, that was that was why Neiman eventually said he'd play naked if he had to prove his innocence. And so that's where we're heading for is the ancient <laughs> Olympiad of chess style. Doesn't necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily dissuade the use of anal beads, I guess. Even if he's naked. <laughs> now, that, that, just when you think that's the most remarkable story for you, I mean, Russ, the, the the fishing cheating story was arguably beats it just in terms of the bizarre nature of it. Yeah, and it goes to show that I think that what we started off this discussion with is where there's a will, there's a way, and and the will is created by the money. These guys won thirty thousand dollars by cheating in mm. fishing competitions, and and what was interesting was when I was reading about this discovered that there was widespread suspicion about these two months before they were caught because they were winning everything. And so it goes to show that even in fishing, dominance is suspicion. If you dominate in a sport where you shouldn't dominate, because I mean, it's fishing, what are the chances you win every competition you're in, right? Like you're going to have to at some point be unlucky. You, ca- you cannot be that much better than everyone else. And sure enough, eventually they, they, they put their fish up for weighing and the experienced eye of one of the judges says hang on a moment your fish are coming in i think it was like 30 something pounds and they're just not that big and so what these guys did was they made the they made the fishing mistake of not microdosing they they mega dosed 
and they and they they stuck they stuck these pellets, these lead pellets, weighing six, just over six pounds, I think, together with fish fillets into their fish, to boost the weight by about six and a half pounds, I think was the number. And if they'd boosted it by three and a half pounds, maybe they would have won just, but maybe been under the point of being obvious. And so the moral of the story is, if you're going to cheat, you have to be smart about it at least. But I suppose for them, if you're going to cheat, you may, you've got to win. So they wanted to make sure they won. Otherwise, it's not worth cheating in the first place. Yeah, but they won so obviously that they were done. So there was, there was even a video of the weighing and people looked at this and you can see, people know, you see, that's the thing. It's like the people in these worlds, they, they know, they have a feel and they say, hang on a moment, something's not adding up here. And it turned out that this year has won over $300,000 in fishing competitions wow. over the last few seasons. So, so this is highly profitable cheating, which is why wow. it happens. I mean, there's an incentive to cheat. There's an insufficient, I mean, they're going to, what are they going to do now? They're going <clears> to <throat> react to this by x-raying every fish. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing is like every single person who tries to get away with something creates a need for the authorities to counteract or react to it. And you end up in these bizarre, I mean, it's just a, yeah, it, crazy to think. That, I mean, but it's, that, think how much money, that's $300,000. Yeah. Significant money. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I mean, Sean, I mean, I suppose I'm putting on the spot here, but I mean, are there any stories that you've heard of as, as covering so many sports around the world as bizarre as those two stories that even not even this year, but before, I mean, that those two must take the cake as two best cheating, well, best out of a bad situation, but best cheating stories ever. I mean, there, there are others, of course. Uh, we remember, um, who was it? Um, was it Dennis Mitchell that, that claimed he'd, um, had the the testosterone um uh, in 98 but didn't he say that he wanted to give his wife a good time so he'd um yes. <laughs> um yeah he drunk five beers and had sex i think and that had boosted his test so i I, th I think there is no um there's no limit to the ingenuity of uh of many athletes when they're caught but they, those two are right up there i agree i'll tell you a good one that actually caught my eye last week mike or just over a week ago is an american sprinter called gil roberts and back in, I forget when it was, it was it was 2016 or so, Gil Roberts is a sprinter and he competed for the US in the 400 meter relay at the Rio Olympics. And he then got caught for taking drugs and his excuse was that he kissed his girlfriend and that's how mm -hmm. the drugs had entered his system. They went to India and she got a sinus infection. And then as a result of kissing her while she was taking this medicine, he failed the test. And he actually he actually was cleared for that excuse, right? That was that was in 2000, whatever it was. The other day, Gil Roberts failed the test and accepted a ban for taking a supplement that he claims was contaminated. This is the same guy, the kissing girlfriend <laughs> excuse. So then you look at this and you say, how unlucky is this guy? First of all, he kisses his girlfriend with sinus meds, and now he's taken an, an unknown supplement that happened to be contaminated with a banned substance and got tested on both occasions. 
Because that's the thing. These guys are tested so infrequently that not only do you need to have the accident of taking it accidentally, you also need to be tested at exactly that moment that you are, quote, unquote, glowing. Yeah. Bill Roberts gets maybe a few years later than, than should have happened, but he gets caught and banned eventually. I wonder if he's got the same girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And it's a, and he only got a 16-month sanction, right? So it's a reduced mm. sanction. So they have, to some degree, accepted that this was also accidental. Jeez. Okay. It's for a psalm, which if I had to have a doping substance of the year, these selective androgen receptor modulators, you know, the psalms, we've, we've discussed those once or twice. They seem to mm. be the drug of choice now among power sprint speed athletes and that's what he got done for so on to a more positive uh, uh subjects uh, starting off with as you say we can't cover every single major event this year because there were so many but on this podcast we have talked a lot and covered a lot of these particular ones but the world athletic championships in the in the states this year sean i'm going to kick off with you just as a general view of course the big question is is there life after usain bolt in the world of track and field uh, well, it's a good question. It's one that people have been asking for the last five years. Um, I, th- I think at these big moments, athletics is great. You know, when you're at Olympics or World Championships, it, it is genuinely thrilling. And uh, I thought it was a great World Championships. The problem the sport has you know, for the other 50 odd weeks of the year, very mm. few people care. But you know, I mean, I was just thinking back to the World Athletics Champs. You know, I mean, to see Sydney McLaughlin do what she did you know, run a 400 meter hurdles in, um, you know, I think it was 50.68, which is just, you know, incredible. She, she would, she would, she'd have finished, I think six from memory in the, in just in the 400 without hopping hurdles. Uh, you know, it's a remarkable performance. And, and we talked but earlier, then, about then, but also, think... also sadly then did the worst post-race interview in the history of a track and field, arguably. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think she, she's, um, she's not the most, uh, talkative, um, and so on but yeah I, we talked earlier about doping and cheating she's been breaking world records since she was 14 so you would hope at least well she certainly has the pedigree you'd hope that you know she she is clean but you know obviously you can you can never know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but I, and afterwards she didn't she looked so ser- serene but um i was chatting to a coach afterwards who said that she was so tired that the, when the world athletics um people came over because they wanted to see her shoes because they, they've got to test shoes every time a world record is broken she didn't have the energy to take her shoes off. Her, her husband had to take them off and uh, give them give them to the world athletics guy. So um, yeah, she may have looked serene, but she was was absolutely struggling um, after that race. She said as much actually, Mike. There was an interview published a week ago or so with her and John Malkin, I think was the journalist, and she said as much there because he was she actually asked about her. I don't know what you call it. Like it looked stoic reaction to breaking that world record. It was more just yeah. an exhausted reaction to, to breaking that record. And I, I suspect the sport, the sports authorities would really want her to, to embrace her mantle as the dom that, I mean, and we say the dominance, this is an athlete who could win both 400 meter events at the same. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. And, you know, they used to say a 400 meter hurdler would be a great 800 athlete as well. So yeah, Plus, they've got, by the way, they've got Athling Mu, who's the uh, 800 meter world champ and Olympic champ. And she's been talking about going down to 400. So I'm sure there's a lot of marketing excitement, but neither of those athletes is, I mean, no one was Usain Bolt. You know, that's the problem. They try to replace, remember, they try to replace Bolt with Wade for Nickak, and he was the same. When he broke yeah. that record in Rio, he just sat on the track. Yeah. <laughs> and I, they must have been willing him to get up and dance or go and like jump on the mascot's back or something but they just you just can't force personalities 
uh, extroversion personalities onto people. It's, it's tricky for them. I mean, the closest arguably is Noah Lyles and that he has got the pedigree as an athlete um, and also potentially also has the charisma, not quite bolt, but n- not far off. And the rival now, you see, that's the most exciting thing there. Mm, He's got that young yeah. kid uh, uh, whose name, see, I told you I had an interview in Amnesia. Save me, Sean. And Enron Knighton. That's the one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's interesting. I mean, Lyles does want to, I mean, I was in the, um, the press conference after he won that 200 and he sort of said, you know, I want to be an influencer. You know, I want to do this. I want to do that. I know he'd, he'd been, he talked about going to the Met Gala and Paris Fashion Week and, um you know he said i don't just want to be a track and field athlete and i think they those the best of the athletes realize it's not just about going to the track and running that's only a part of their job if they want to earn the money they want to earn they have to sort of go places like tiktok and insta and everything else where have actually have people care about what they do and i think i wouldn't necessarily want track and field to follow boxing in many ways but boxing and mma are very good at selling their sport mm. very good at selling the personalities creating rivalries creating a demand for people to watch and i think track and field is still the whole still strikes me a little bit sort of um you know back in the 50s or 60s that sort of attitude of you know we'll, we'll put on a show people come and watch and actually you need to do far more to to market the sport um these days you know any sport that is What's interesting, you mentioned about MMA and, and boxing, and I in MMA, for instance, that a lot of those MMA fighters are incentivized by the federations on their social media and their followers and that sort of thing. So there is a, a, a sort of organization and, a, and the federation themselves look at that. I mean, talking generally, as you say, around the personality of the sport, I'm always amazed that there isn't more... I wouldn't say media training, but social media training for those top athletes. I mean, when you speak to these guys in the in the in the zones after the race, do you find that some athletes are going to go, okay, right, you're going to get a good quote from Noah Lyles, but you know, Sydney McLaughlin, you know, you're not going to get much. I mean, is it does it frustrate you as a journalist that they don't sort of embrace that aspect of of their personality? Yeah, completely. I mean, there are some brilliant talkers. You know, uh, Jake Whiteman, who won the fifteen hundred meter gold medal. It's an absolutely superb talk, a lovely guy. Um, there's some other Brits that are, are similar, but an awful lot of them for media training, they seem to have been taught say nothing. Mm. And actually the best of them do say something always. Um, I I ghost wrote Greg Rutherford, the 2012 Olympic long jump champions book. And I used to see him on the circuit a lot and he would always have something to say. You know, he would be happy talking about doping. You know, I remember we talked about, there was some some um someone had just been popped and he said you know he had a long jump um track built in his house and the builders had been asking his dad so is greg doping what's he on is he on the good stuff and that and, and greg used that to make a point that everyone thinks athletes are doping and and he you know he wasn't and he, and he insisted he wasn't but he said that that was the mindset of the average person but whenever you came and spoke to him or he spoke to us at a mixer he'd always have something to say you know he'd happily chat about the russian doping he'd happily chat about you know, he'd happily slam his own federation. You know, he he just, it was just yeah. him as a person. But, you know, I think athletes should give more of themselves when actually a lot of the time they're just taught to talk about, I want to execute my race and, you know, do a good performance and off I go. And that's never going to sell the sport. And have do you, you think that... A, sorry, sorry you're like, a go. media guy. Have you ever had to help an athlete learn about media work? No, but I mean, uh, I, I do sometimes think... Uh, that you know, again, I'm not touting my services around, but I I could, as as could plenty of others, 
help athletes in a way that you know would be beneficial to them because i don't think it's that difficult it's you know it's 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 about being your being you know being yourself but having something to say um and do it in an interesting way and and because ultimately they are fighting for space whether it's on telly whether it's in newspapers yeah. or it's on websites and you know when you have got this football this great behemoth and you know and other big sports as well you are you know you're a small sport and and but yet it's a it, it, the advantage athletics has got is a very simple sport you know we all you know from the ages two three four run faster jump higher uh, throw further it's it's not hard you know in theory to explain to a general audience but the athletes have to make people care and a lot of them don't um unfortunately mm. i mean I, I when i was with the Savage and sevens team we used to have media training every year for the for the players and it was so vanilla like it just actually cringeworthy stuff and part of the problem was that the athletes are just lack confidence and they're not really all that eloquent um mm. And so they they try and damage their, their their default setting seems to be let's damage control the situation let's make sure you say nothing that could be deemed offensive insulting uh, derogatory potentially politically inflammatory whatever it is and in the end that's why you get interviews where you can sit there and count the cliches one yes. two three, four credit to the other team everyone gave one hundred and ten percent we put up our hands and we gave it our best effort so it's like okay that was a waste of a minute. I no, uh, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think sorry, final thing on this, Mike. Um, if you go back 20, 30, 40 years, athletes didn't earn that much. They would often hang out with journalists after races. They would get used to sort of they would sort of trust each other in a way. Um, you know, you'd say, look, I'm saying this off the record, but I think X is this. And you've got that relationship. And it, and I think as a lot of these athletes have become superstars and a lot of money, um, they sort of don't see the need for media. Um, and perhaps that separation has led to um and, and also media training as well but a lot of them have got great stories i just wish they would, they would tell them you know it's interesting i, I noticed the world uh, marathon majors uh, came out uh, sort of just over a month or so ago where they talked about the fact that there was reduced prize money now for the world marathon majors purely because and i i don't quote them directly but it was something along the lines of many of the runners out there don't either care or don't know the top runners in the world. And um, that, that was indicative of the fact that even at world marathon majors level, they, they identify that, you know, if another Kenyan, unless it's a Kipchoge, who's well known into the, in the sort of zeitgeist, it's just another Kenyan, another Ethiopian, and almost to differentiate themselves by being media friendly, I, I guess would help raise the profile of these athletes so that we understand not only are they brilliant athletes, but actually we start understanding a bit more about them. And I, I think it's that, that element that always makes me a bit sad that top athletes don't get maybe what they deserve in some of the sports like marathon running purely because, you know, there's a language barrier, there's an education barrier, there's all sorts of things which are involved there. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Mm. Right, so let's move on to, uh, I guess, probably the biggest scientific controversy of the year. Now, Ross, I want to ask you to sort of kick this one off, but you know, maybe the poster, poster girl of this, Leah Thomas, was probably one of the big stories around trans transgender sports in 2022. It's a it's a story that never seems to go away, but um, it's one of those stories that uh, amazingly is creating controversy. Yet the science speaks for itself. Yeah, and it's moving so quickly in so many different directions. I remember like learning about Brownian motion, which is the motion path followed by molecules. And if you follow them, they're just all over the place, generally heading in one direction, but like not in a straight line. And that's how this issue sometimes feels. If you go back, 
a year ago, we were coming off the Tokyo Olympics and Laurel Hubbard had become the first known trans woman to compete. And there was some controversy about that. There was a now infamous press conference where her rivals, the, the medal winners, she, she wasn't one of them, were asked about her participation and they one by one said, no, thank you. And you got a pretty strong impression from that about how some of these female athletes feel about this issue in their sport. UK Sport then had commissioned uh, an Australian woman called Dr. Rosalind Carbon and her company to do an in-depth investigation into the science, the human rights issues, the legality, the social elements of it. And that report came out, I think, in about November last year. And it pretty much concluded the same thing that World Rugby had a year before it, which is that you can't balance inclusion of trans women with fairness to women and safety in some sports to women. And so at that point, I think it became that that was a watershed in the whole debate, because from that moment forward, it becomes quite clear that whatever sports are doing, they are choosing. Now, you, you can take the approach of the IOC, which we'll get onto because that's now very recent, literally in the last day or two. You can take the approach that FINA then adopted this year, where you can say, and it's the same as World Rugby's, where you can say that you won't allow biological males into women's sport because the advantages created by male development, androgens, literally the word means male, andro, making, genesis, are so large and irreversible, you can't get rid of those even when you suppress testosterone, that you cannot have inclusion of those athletes and ensure fairness to women. That's, that's the fundamental point. Um, and so, so now we all understand that sports making choices. And from that point forward, it basically becomes just a spot who's making what choice. That's all it is from now on. I mean, <laughs> and people are trying to dress it up and justify it and make it more complicated than it is. But it's pretty straightforward. It's you choose to allow unfairness into women's sport because you are prioritizing inclusion or you choose not to allow it because you prioritize fairness and safety. That, that should be the end of it. And everyone can now get on with it. But unfortunately, it's been made a lot more complex than that. Sean, I mean, is it what I find interesting about this is do people really care about it? Because it obviously only affects certain sports with certain instances. But are there is it is it a big story in sports? Yeah, absolutely. I think 50% of the world's population care about it. And uh, certainly by our, looking at our traffic, whenever we write about it, it's it, it does does resonate. I think what's very interesting, we still have this culture of fear. Uh, Ross mentioned the um, the sports councils here in the UK's uh, report. And, and if you go to one of the many papers they produced, um, there was a very telling paragraph that sort of said a lot of people uh, we speak to inside sport are afraid to, to give their true feelings about what they see as unfairness and the damage, et cetera, et cetera, because they could lose their jobs, because... Um, you know that they, they will be attacked on social media, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think that's slightly changing, perhaps. But um, I still think there is a huge culture and climate of fear around around this debate. Particularly, I think those who favour women's sport feeling they 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 can't can't speak out. Uh, many athletes, particularly, I think, because they feel they'll be they'll be accused of of being transphobic or or, or anti this or anti that. Mm. I mean, is it, yeah, is it I mean, a difficult... Most recently, Mike, sorry, Mike, I was just going to say, yeah. literally the most recent thing that happened was in US cyclocross. Two out of the top five in the women's race are trans women. Neither of those two athletes had much pedigree to speak of before that. So, so, And this is 
this is the surest thing. So, sorry, I was I was actually doing history lesson and I interrupted myself. Leah Thomas came in in March this year and effectively confirmed the biological papers. So that yeah. the papers were showing that when you suppress, let's, let's just remind let's just remind uh, listeners who Leah Thomas is obviously the first openly transgender athlete to win an NCAA title as a woman, having previously been a biological male. So yes. just to kind of explain that, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and, and scientifically, it's still a biological male with maybe yes. suppressed testosterone. We don't know exactly what the testosterone levels are. There's been some controversy about that, whether it was uh, below the targeted five nanomol per liter. Because, and if, and if you're coming to this new, what the authorities have tried to do going back more than a decade, almost two decades, is to say that if you identify as a woman, but you're male, we will allow you into women's sport if you suppress your testosterone levels. Now, let's take away what we believe to be the source of the advantage, and there's no longer unfairness, and you're good to go. The problem is, and really the only question that matters in that model is does taking the testosterone away remove the advantage? Not reduce, not slightly uh, eliminate, not partially take it away. It shouldn't remove it because otherwise what you're doing is you're telling women that they should accept an athlete into their competition who's carrying across a category advantage. You know, that's someone from a male competition is being allowed into their competition. So, so we look at the evidence, and there are now some studies on this. Just for disclosure, none of them on elite athletes. They are on healthy or, or potentially, I suppose, in some instances not, but they are individuals who are not athletically trained elite athletes who are suppressing testosterone levels for various reasons. Some of them are trans, some of them have prostate cancer, etc. And you say, well, what happens to them? And yes, they get slightly weaker. Their hemoglobin levels drop they get slightly slower in running tasks and so forth, but not fully. In other words, they retain a significant part of male advantage. And then you allow this person into women's sport. Now, the prediction you would make is that a person who's ranked, say, 30th out of 100 in men's competition will leapfrog women and suddenly find themselves in the top three or four in women's competition because they're yeah. carrying through male advantage. And that is exactly what has happened. So Leah Thomas was ranked in some disciplines outside the top 200 in men's competition, is now an NCAA champion, swimming times that are legitimately world-class, beating Olympic swimmers in women's competition, having previously been, whilst not an average swimmer, relatively mediocre as a man. It's the same thing that had happened a week or two ago at the US Cyclocross Championships. Cyclists who were reasonable in the men's competition, but by no means elite, are now champions and medalists, podium finishers in women's competition. So we are seeing the fulfillment of the hypothesis or the prediction that the scientific evidence makes. And that will happen more and more and more until sports get to grips with us and do what is fair for women. Yeah. Sean, I'm, I'm interested to know when you approach the subject, how do you how do you deal with it? Because you know, as you know, you're going to get you're going to get the hate mail, as 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 Ross has experienced. Um, is it just do you write it purely on the facts and the scientific facts about what's out there? How do you approach these sort of stories? Well, I mean, I'm a reporter, so my job is to report, and I think a lot of journalists though they shy away from subject because it's too controversial, because they know they will get abuse. But I don't know. I, I just think as a journalist, if you're not running towards the fire if you're not interrogating 
big stories, whatever, whether it's sport, politics, whatever, then you're not not doing your job. So uh, yeah, I've I've taken a fair bit of flack, but I, I think it's an important subject. It's it's going to be uh, remain an important subject. So therefore, I I, I should um, I should cover it. It's as simple as that, really. But you see, the thing is, the media, and you you alluded to this already. So forgive me for repeating it. The fear that Sean spoke about that affects so many different organisations or groups. It's the journalists who don't want to wade into it because they know what comes back at them when they do. It's the athletes. I mean, when we when we try to consult three years ago now with World Rugby, women didn't want to speak because they're so scared of the consequences of saying what they think. And then what you get is that that really awkward situation where they're hinting at their discomfort. You know, you'll ask them and they'll say, you know, we're quite nervous about this. What that actually means is I'm really scared. <laughs> but the, the thing about it is, People are actually, for the most part, not all, but for the most part, I think people are trying to be quite decent and respectful. And they don't want to just come out with a with a blunt baseball bat and take a big swing at it. They want to be, they want to be circumspect and respectful about it and so on. And then you you get hints and you get sort of, I'm I'm quite nervous about this and I I'm just unsure and so forth. And and then that sort of gets brushed aside as like there's no strong opinion on the other side of the debate. And, and, and based on what's happened in the last couple of days, the only thing that's really going to blow this thing out now is when those women start to set aside that circumspection and say, no, thank you. And I want to, I want to, two days, three days ago, I think it was at the weekend, let's call it, a paper comes out again. It's a BJSM, FIMS, these are two organizations, position stand. And it really represents in large part the IOC's position on this. And I wanted to read to you a paragraph here. And for me, this captures, it's one of half a dozen things. It says here, stakeholder engagement. This is a, remember, this is a guidance document for sports now on how to deal with this issue. Stakeholder engagement is a necessary and valuable part of an organization's efforts to uphold human rights and prevent violations. Principle eight of the framework aims to ensure that sports bodies consider the perspectives and lived experiences of those who may be affected by the development and implementation of eligibility criteria. This is a particularly valuable opportunity to constructively engage with the athletes that would be most directly impacted by eligibility criteria, namely who? Who do you think they're talking about there, Mike? Well, obviously women. No. Transgender. Obviously not. Namely <laughs> trans athletes and or athletes see, uh, with okay, variations. Yeah. So that's the position from sport now. It's extraordinary. Yeah. The people yeah. who are most, let's let's be clear here. The athletes that are directly impacted by these eligibility criteria are women athletes who compete in women's sport. Yes. But their perspective, their paradigm is to not worry about women. It's to worry about the trans athletes. And they go on later in that same documents to recommend extensive consultation with advocacy groups for those, those athletes. So where do you see this going is the question. It's enormously frustrating because the science is quite clear. The UCI surveyed elite cyclists, and I think 90% of their female cyclists said, we do not want trans women, male advantage in our category. FINA did the same thing, and the figure was in the 80% range. Whenever you ask women athletes in an anonymous way what it is that they want for themselves, they will say, we want women's sport to be female only. Yeah. And these sports... One after the next, not all. There are some at least common sense approaches being taken, but so many of them are just discarding that viewpoint and they are including biological males in despite the fact that we know you can't take the advantage away. And they, 
And I mean, you read that, namely who? Well, woman, you'd think, no, <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. And that's why I, I said yesterday, the only thing now for these women to do, having been so let down by their sports organizations, is to say, we will not compete and we will not allow this to happen. We'll, and, and that's, it's unfair because all they want is an equal opportunity to train, be recognized for their performances, but they're being denied that and they're going to have to boycott if, if someone is, doesn't step in. And the next big body, and maybe Sean can take over here, is World Athletics. What will they do? That will be very important in the first quarter of next year. I mean, Sean, the groundswell is definitely in favor of uh, of what Ross is talking about, women's sports standing up for the integrity of their sport. It, it seems that that is the way it's going, even though there are some organizations that are yet to make those that, that decision. Um, I mean, I, I honestly, I slightly disagree. I mean, I think it's it's still very mixed. You have you have FINA that have essentially said, um, as Ross, Ross said, that uh, banning, banning trans women and, and, and suggesting there should be a third open category. But then you get sort of world cycling, which is suggesting actually some level of unfairness is OK because of inclusion. So I think it's still mm. it's still very mixed. Yeah. Um, what athletics is interesting. I, I was there in Eugene in the summer where Sebco said that fairness is non-negotiable and biology trumps identity. So you would think that they would be in a position closer to FINA. But um, I, I think they are they're very careful and, and also wary um, because of what happened with the Casta Semenya uh, affair. They had to go to obviously the Court of Arbitration for Sport. It cost them over, I think, a million dollars to defend their position. So um, they are they're very wary of 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 of, of doing too much that could could end up back in cast essentially and i think they're perhaps waiting to see what happens with fina i do wonder whether you know they they were going to make a decision at the start of this month and they've kicked it kicked into touch for a few months uh they were perhaps waiting to see if anyone challenges fina's position uh at cast first uh and see what see what happens there but um yeah we're, we're in a very messy situation and we haven't even got on to things like the new york marathon offering prize money to non-binary athletes yeah. so we had um you know someone that won five thousand dollars in the new york marathon for running i think a 245 and i think someone won four thousand for running a 309 marathon which are which are very average times but uh but yeah but that's that's a different issue but it's also related obviously to this one mm, same root cause and yeah. then <laughs> last word in the same paper no presumption of advantage remember when the isc brought out their initial policy and they said that there should never be a presumption of advantage for a male <laughs> a trans woman which i'm saying male even though that'll offend some people that that's that's still here and so it's <laughs> literally saying until evidence determines otherwise athletes should not be deemed to have an unfair or disproportionate competitive advantage due to their sex variations physical appearance and or transgender status now if you start with that position, then you might as well just open the floodgates because the whole the whole premise of categories in sport is that we understand that in general, well, the typical case of one category has an unfair advantage over the typical case of another, male, female, heavyweight, lightweight, adult, youth, uh, mm. adult, master's athlete, whatever the case is. The whole point of categories in sports is to try and regulate unfair advantage because of these characteristics. But this is the only instance in which they wish to set that aside and say that we shouldn't assume that a biological male has an unfair advantage over a biological female, provided they identify as the opposite gender. It's, it's a ludicrous situation. And this is what the IOC's scientific minds have produced. It is cowardice 
because they cannot be literally this stupid. So that's what this is, is, is a decision to set aside knowledge in order for this ideology to instead be, be preferred. It's, 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 I don't, I hate this issue and I don't know what it's going to throw <laughs> up in 2023, but at some point, Leah Thomas, Austin Killips, the cyclist, there've been cases in skateboarding, there've been cases in surfing, there've been cases in disc golf, which you'd never thought of. At some point, there'll be half a dozen cases in swimming and in athletics and in cycling and in football, potentially. And then maybe people will start sitting up and taking notice. But that's what it's going to take because leadership has failed. I think there are two two points I think worth mentioning here. One is that how much the debate has shifted in the last decade. And whatever you think of this issue, what those arguing for, for trans women's sport have done has been masterful in a way in terms of PR and, and managing to shift the debate. debate. Um, I mean, last year I wrote about Dr. Richard Budget, who's the IOC's uh, chief uh, medical and scientific director. I unearthed an, a letter from 2003 where he was asked about you know, transgender women competing in women's sport. And he said the effect would be to make competition unfair and potentially dangerous in some sports and would undermine women's sports. And yet, you know, 19 years on, here's a guy that, um, you know, is right, you know, is, is leading, leading the charge on this. Um, I think the second point here is that uh, we, we talk about a little bit, but grassroots sport, I think, is really interesting here. And we often talk about elite sport and the Leah Thomases and the Laura Hubbards of this world. But I mean, I, I and I've heard stories in the UK here. You know, if you come second in in a women's race to a transgender woman uh, in your local county championship or your local regional championships, okay, the prize might be sort of a bottle of wine, but for you, it's still important if you come second. And I do wonder at some point. Uh, whether you know that that the local level and at the amateur level how how things will change if, if at all yeah part of that is like i get the impression they've had to change their argument as the as the scientific evidence has emerged and been put forward where we now know that there's a retention of advantage we know that it's unfair we know that it's potentially unsafe they can no longer deny those issues so it comes back to that choice thing and what they're then instead forcing upon women is is what the meaning of sport should be for them. I should say it shouldn't matter to you to not win. It used to be, don't worry, it's not going to be unfair. Now it's okay, it's unfair, but it actually shouldn't bother you all that much. Why are you complaining? There's a there's a greater good here and it's inclusion. And again, it just it diminishes the voice and the opinion and the agency of, of women athletes, in my opinion. It's going to be so, interesting yeah. to watch in 2023 for sure. Uh, onto a, a different kind of advantage. And uh, I think next year, if I had to look at a, at one harder that I'm looking forward to, that's the Boston Marathon, where we've got uh, double Olympic champion and world record holder Eliab Kipchoge up against the world champion Gabriel Selassie there, amongst a number of six-time former winners. And I, I think it leads me into the discussion around marathon running. Kipchoge, of course, breaking the world record again this year, even at his relatively advanced age. Rust, let's kick it off with you. Is the the shoe wars? Can we can we say that the shoe wars have led everybody to be around about the equal now? And you know, it's not just about Nike having a mass advantage. Do you think most of the shoes are now up to a level where everybody has a similar advantage mechanically? Genuinely, don't know. And the and the you know, I'm circumspect about guessing, so I'm going to stick with don't know. But I'd be surprised, honestly. I I can't see how. A smaller company with second, third, fourth mover status can possibly catch up to the giant of um, Nike as first mover. 
you could maybe Adidas, but I mean, they, they claim to have data, but they don't publish it. So therefore the answer is no, like publish the stuff and then happy days, everyone can go forward. But, but based on the performances, I genuinely don't know. But for me, the, the bigger issue is not necessarily brand A versus brand B versus C, but that, of course, that's part of it. It's also individuals in A, individuals in B, and individuals within C, because I'm, I'm still not sure what the range of responses possible for an athlete is. I'm, it wouldn't surprise me if some athletes are getting 3 4 5% and others 1%. And that means that the, the result you're seeing is being changed by the shoe. It's just not in a way that is as overtly and obviously unfair because of commercial pressures. It's just, it's, it's just all the Adidas athletes, all the Nike athletes, they are being reshuffled in their own shoe set, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Does that Sean, matter? Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. Sean, do you think, I mean, is it something that you even bother reporting about now that, that the shoes are potentially the difference in these performances? Or do you see these performances in a, in a sort of journalistic way as just a human endeavor that's got better? Um, I mean, I, I would slightly disagree with Ross in the sense that I think there has been a leveling out simply just... If you go back to 2019, I think 31 of the 36 podiums at the World Marathon Majors were Nike shoes. And, and this time around, you know, it's much closer. So I, I don't disagree in the sense that Nike may well be slightly better than others, but at least at least we know the gap has shrunk. And, and you know, if you if you ran in Nike in, in 2018, 2019, you had a ridiculous advantage and, and now you might have a small one. So at least that that's mm. better. Um uh, I, I think inevitably uh, you, you, the problem was world athletics back then what weren't acknowledging the fact that there was a big advantage. So that's what led to so many, helped lead to so many of the stories about the super shoes, as well as obviously the performance gains they were doing. These days, I think we have moved on simply because the, there isn't, you know, a brand or a shoe that is so much better than the others. But it, it's it's still, still obviously, it, has, it has been a complete game changer. And when you speak to a lot of former athletes, they, you know, Back when I was growing up, if you could run a sub 145, 800, that marked you out as, as exceptional. If you could run a sub 144, you were kind of you know, absolutely world class. And you know, what, well, you know, I completely agree on Ross's. I'd love to see sort of what is the range, particularly say with the new the new sprint uh, spikes and the new uh, track spikes, because I, I know I know I, I, informally I've spoken to British coaches and that they all identify certain athletes that um, are massive responders to the shoe and. Um, and, and others aren't and you can see that in some of their performances um, uh, mm. so it, it, it's a fascinating subject still but perhaps for the mainstream it's less of a story that, that it was two or three years ago having uh, had the privilege of actually meeting uh, Haley Gabriel Selassie earlier this year I actually asked him that question while we were at the Adidas headquarters in Germany and uh, one thing I asked him I said you know do you do you regret the fact that you were just a little bit you, you sort of were competing just after the, the 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 introduction of these super shoes and he says he's very jealous of the of the runners these days because he feels that he could have broken the world marathon record if he'd had the advantage of those shoes so you know i guess in his belief um it has skewed the record books and and the shoes are a massive part of that right ross any, any anything to add around that i mean i know you've <laughs> interesting thing about this is that it, it that the super shoes haven't just as as sean has just mentioned not just about marathon running they've moved into the track and that and to some extent those track performances are now being skewed to to a large extent as well yeah and i did read something early this year i forget where it was but that the 400 hurdles because remember in tokyo 
maybe mm. the event of the games was that 400 hurdles where Carsten Warholm broke the world record and so did second and maybe even third or, or De Santos was third right Sean and I don't think he got under the old world record right yeah from memory that's right yeah the top two it was Warholm Benjamin De Santos this year at world champs De Santos won the gold Warholm had had some injury issues but I read that the hurdles was the event being most affected by the shoe because yeah the challenge with the hurdles, of course, is the stride pattern and the shoe gave you half a centimeter per step. And that meant that you'd be in a comfortable position with fatigue to still clear the hurdle with a better stride pattern. Sean, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it is. And I, I think it's it's almost more noticeable. With, if you see the women's 100 meter hurdles in Eugene, we had the Nigerian Toby Amusan. Yes. Um, yeah. She, you know, her PB from memory was at 12.40 coming into the event, but she'd swapped her normal hurdle shoe for some uh, Adidas shoes that effectively long jumpers were wearing. Um, I think that's right. Um, yeah. And that gave her more of a sort of bounce over the hurdles. And she broke the world record running, you know, 12.12, which is an extraordinary, mm. um, you know, change um, to, to shave nearly three tenths of, of, of your PB and, and win, a, win a world record. But, um, but yeah, so yeah, the effect, effects of shoes are clearly still uh, massive. Yeah. I mean, uh, we make the hurdles taller for the women, especially. <laughs> True, especially in the 400 meters. Yeah, the absolutely. 400 hurdles. Like, and, and I've seen some data on this actually. If you look at typical leg length, the men's hurdles are definitely disproportionately longer than the women's hurdles in relation to the length of men's legs and women's legs. So I do think, and that's why the performance of McLaughlin, whilst remarkable, it's so close to the 400 flat because the hurdles don't disrupt them enough. Whereas in the men's mm. race, they actually have to, <laughs> they actually have to change how they run. So. I think that that's it's not not that it's going to happen, but it should. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm actually also, I'm looking now. Sorry, it's the Adidas Adizero Avanti, which are um, 5k and 10k shoes. You know, the Adidas build them as uh, they reduce fatigue, so you finish 5k and 10k races with a kick. So it's remarkable that you could um, do that track, but because they have that sort of, I think it's 25 mil of foam or 20 mil of foam, it just gives you that extra sort of of spring when you're clearing those hurdles. Plus a leg length advantage, yeah. Mm. In other words, what, Ross, when you say leg length advantage? Well, longer legs is is beneficial for, remember we spoke to Jeff Burns, this was probably two years ago now, and we were discussing why these shoes make such a difference. And the answer is in part energy return, in part fatigue reduction, but there's also a significant leg length component to it that a biomechanist can explain um, better than I, I can. But I suspect, I mean, in hurdles, that's going to be a significant part of it is if you've got relatively longer legs, the hurdles are relatively shorter. But what I find absolutely fascinating about that story actually was that those shoes were used incidentally rather than deliberately. Um, and we talk about all the research that goes into the shoes, but as Sean just described, those shoes were used for not, not their intended use. They were used just as a sort of, maybe these will work and they did. Now I can imagine we're going to see these types of shoes in those events now more prolific and maybe made specifically. But despite all that research that goes into the shoe development, it was literally somebody going, maybe these will work and using them in competition and breaking a world record in the process. So it's, I find that quite quite strange in this modern day of technology development. One thing that's quite interesting. So I wrote about Amusan at the time and I and, and I've just I went back earlier and had a read of it and, and it's simply just a factual report you know that stuff we talked about here she discovered these shoes but the amount of abuse I got from Nigerians in particular essentially mm. accusing me of saying you know 
she she cheated by using these when I hadn't didn't say that oh I was diminishing her achievements when I when I didn't uh, it just sort of shows actually how um how I don't know how people sometimes cling to sort of this nationalist thing you know and if a journalist writes something that's factual you know they can still be accused of um of uh you know of whatever you know criticizing or, or slamming an athlete when I had no intention mm. of doing so no, I suppose yeah. that's the other side of it really you actually not but you the, the intention can sound wrong yeah, there was major controversy about that race because that world record went in the semi-final, didn't it? And there was mm. was the was the controversy about whether there was a wind or whether it was a, a timing issue on the block. Yeah, Mike, Michael Johnson the, said it was time a timing issue, but mm. uh, yeah, wouldn't be the first time those Eugene starting blocks were in the news. Not for that reason. They were. <laughs> it was Devin Allen. Remember, we discussed the controversies around the false false start disqualification of Devin Allen and the fact that the blocks might have been too sensitive. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right, so let, let's uh, move on to the final subjects. And uh, you can't uh, wrap up 2022 without wrapping up uh, the Qatar 2022. Um, of course, the the World Cup, the football World Cup. And uh, I can say that from my own perspective that I've, I've never been much of a football fan. And we've done our last few podcasts before these. Uh, we did a lot of uh, investigation and spoke to a lot of people, particularly around the penalty shootout, which was absolutely fascinating. And I must say, it, it really improved my enjoy, enjoyment of the game. And uh, arguably, I would say that that final that we watched uh, as we were recording this just on a few days ago was 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 an amazing spectacle. Sean, I, I guess my my overall question is, uh, Lionel Messi, is, is he become the the top footballer in history would you say or was that maybe an overstatement well i, I mean i i'm um I, i'm of a certain age where um i grew up watching diego maradona and 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 you know i was a, an impressionable young lad when he um he won the 86 world cup with argentina so for me he will always be probably always be the greatest simply because he was playing an era where people would kick him to pieces he was um, he was a very different game back then. Uh, however, um, Messi has certainly um, got as good an argument as anyone to 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 be either alongside him um, or maybe just touch behind him uh, from what he's done in the last uh, few weeks. But we knew that anyway. To be honest, we knew this sort of, sort of slightly debate whether it's Messi or Ronaldo. I think most people would, apart from Piers Morgan here in the UK, would would say the <laughs> Messi was 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 better and. Uh, it, perhaps it's one of those things where it's quite hard to compare, like in all sports, compare generations. So he's the best of this generation, just like Maradona was the best of his generation and Pele was the best of his generation. Ross, where, where do you sit on this uh, debate? Well, I'm Messi is to me what Maradona was to Sean. Like he's the guy I remember watching from 15 years ago, playing for Barcelona and so on. I've heard a lot of people talk about the, the era of football, and obviously it's the case. That's why it's so difficult. It's the same situation you have in tennis. You, how do you compare Nadal, Federer, Djokovic with their technology and the way the sport is played to Rod Laver and even Mac? Okay, Macna wouldn't probably feature there, but Laver when they were playing on very different courts with completely different strings. The balls mm. were different. The rackets were wooden. The game was... It's completely different. I would argue that the way that football is played now with systems approach instead of individual, with analysis and video analysis of opponents, the way the spaces are closed and so forth, I think that probably is equal to what Sean said about Maradona being kicked about by players. You know, it's it's probably more difficult to stand out individually in a system sport than it is than it was for him. And when I watch Messi play, I just think the guy sees things five seconds faster than anyone else the 
the, everyone is is giving plaudits to that that goal that he set up in the semi final when he, he he beat the same defender about three times, stopped him, turned him, stopped him, turned him again. The one in the quarterfinal that he put through for I think it was Molina against um, the Netherlands, he he didn't even look at the guy. He just knew he was there because I think he'd worked it out seconds before he got the ball. And sometimes you see these guys and they just they just do things that no one else even sees. I again in rugby there were two or three players that you'd watch rugby just to see because they did stuff no one else even seemed to have the time to think about, let alone execute. And he seems to me to be the same as that. So, so it's just. Uh, like the the cross era comparisons are ultimately defeating. People say, "Oh, Messi won more Champions Leagues." Well, that's because Pele couldn't play in them because <laughs> the Brazil government had legislation that prevented him going to Europe to play. Maradona was playing in some Champions Leagues, but back then you could only qualify for it if you won your league. Now it's top four, so Maradona got fewer opportunities to win that than Messi did. So trophies won is not a good way to judge it. Um, Across eras, the sport is different. I mean, would I suppose that the acid test is would Maradona dominate modern football like he did he did in the eighties? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I suspect not because of the systems approach to it. I mean, I must say, Sean, I I kind of uh, go with Ross on this one because I think the level of the game now is just so difficult to differentiate yourself and the standards are so high. And with my limited knowledge of football, just watching some of those touches uh, that are just probably largely instinctual, um, put him in a different league in a sport that is massively competitive. competitive Having now just given the case for that, if, if you put Maradona in the current football, he'd still have those touches. And he would be he would be improved by the systems he was a part of as well. So actually, he probably would be, he would be at the same level. So would Pele. Pele yeah. probably would have been just as good as the two of them. So I, I don't know. I don't think you can tell apart the three best players in a truly global competitive sport. But by definition, they'll be equal almost. Sean? There's a great um, there's a great YouTube video of of, of Pele doing all the things your favorite players do now and, and sort of mm. saying he was the first to have done yes. this and that. And, that, and that's remarkable. And, and, and uh, there are numerous Maradona compilations on, on YouTube as well. And you, there's, there's one famous one, I think before the UEFA, won the UEFA Cup final, where he's just kicking the ball up in the air and, and then doing all sorts of tricks with his shoulders. And Gary Lineker has always said this, that um, he was playing with Maradona. There was, I think, a 100-year anniversary of the English Football League. And Maradona was just, he, he got the ball halfway line, he just kicked it high, high, high up in the air and it just sort of landed on his boot. And he did it again and again. And he said, that he told everyone at sort of, you know, England uh, the next time, you know, this is what I saw Maradona. And they were all doing it. These are great players. And none of them, you know, they might be able to get one and kick it miles up in the air and it land on their foot. But that would be it. And then, you know, they'd have to run and get it. And, and Lineker, who I think is... I think he's an advocate for Messi as well, but you know, he, I think he puts Messi and Maradona pretty much on a level, and and that, that's fair enough to me. Mm. Is it? I mean, Sean, is it? A, is it? A, we're asking this question on this podcast, but you're what you're suggesting is that this is a obviously a big talking point um, in football about who who is the greatest. I mean, is that is it a regular feature in the UK I, I to discuss this? Re- I think it's just a regular feature of of of, of, sport, of, of mm. life and journalism. Of us, and we're always arguing. You know, <laughs> in any sport, who's the greatest? Is X better than Y? I mean, it's just. I mean, it's mm. just it's just part of the part of the way it goes, really. I mean, we're we're always doing it. You know, if it's yeah, whatever the sport, whatever the situation, we're always trying to compare to assess. 
to sort of have our sort of um you know our, our pecking order in the pantheon so it's yeah it's no different in, in, in soccer mm. yeah I've seen so many memes with uh, goats and the Argentinian flag in the last couple of days on Instagram that uh, obviously the, the the groundswell is in favour of Messi right now. But uh, if there was yeah. a word, if there was a word I could retire from sports lexicon, it would be goat. The goat. <laughs> I hate that. It's really, it's so. It's anyway. Let me not be that old buddy daddy guy. Like I just hate that word. <laughs> Ross, just a, just a final word from you. I know that you're obviously in your role with World Rugby, but there's a final thing on, on what's been happening in the world of rugby and concussion. That's also changed a lot um, this year and been lots of fair. There's been some controversy. There's been some, uh, there's been some uh, developments there. I mean, where are we with uh, contact sports and uh, concussions at the moment? Yeah. I mean, there's a lawsuit, right? And that's, that's the kind of the big thing hanging over yeah. it now. It's been a difficult year for the sport. It's been a difficult year for players who played the sport, of course, as well. One mustn't forget that. And, you know, we did a podcast about a month back about the um, the Amsterdam Concussion Conference, mostly, where the world's exports and experts in sports concussion meet to discuss various elements. But, of course, that conference was dominated by the issue on long-term outcomes and particularly CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, for those who haven't heard the term before. Um <laughs> And, you know, like there's a position statement comes out. Ours is just, I, I was, for disclosure, I was an author on a statement on concussion prevention in contact sport. And we've just submitted that now for publication. So in the early part of next year, sometime in the first quarter, it'll come out along with nine others, eight others. One of them would have been this, this long-term health and chronic traumatic encephalopathy piece. But they're gridlocked. They can't, they can't reach consensus because the... The scientists can't necessarily agree on the causal link between playing contact sport and CTE. And that's what we discussed in that podcast. And it'll continue to go. We take obviously the sports take a lot of criticism, including from the from the Guardians among the most critical of, of rugby in particular, which is to some degree understandable. I get it, but it's also it's very difficult to try and explain to people some of the challenges in trying to change things now. I mean, I, I can't speak to what it was like in the 90s and the early 2000s, which is what a lot of these court cases are, are revolving around players from that era. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 been a, it's been a tough year. Next year, the lawsuit, who knows where that goes? I, is it settled? Does it actually make it to trial? How it proceeds? I don't know enough about the law to tell you exactly what, what will go on there, but I've got no doubt it'll be a big story next year. It'll keep a lot of people very busy. Sean, is it on your radar to discuss this? It's one of those subjects which doesn't seem very sexy, but yet does affect sport. I mean, I think it's not just rugby, of course. It's it's all no. sorts of sports. And I think we're all wrestling, really. I mean, I, I come from a boxing family. Um, my grandfather was the first Irishman to win a European title. Um, I have cousins that train fighters. And I think if we're absolutely being all honest with ourselves, any sport that involves contact between whether it's hand and head, head and head, shoulder and head is, is, is more risky than we perhaps think. And we're all trying to find ways of, um, of mitigating some of these effects. But I do wonder where we will be in 30, 40 years time with, with lawsuits and, and, and fears over, over and once we know more of the science and, and, and safety aspects. So, uh, but, but I look at boxing say, and how a fighter could be knocked down and clearly, I mean, I'm not talking about punch to the stomach when you're punched to the head and you're clearly woozy and let be allowed to continue when it's, they're obviously concussed. Um, 
you know, surely in the next 10 years that will have to change. Um, and I speak as someone that has grown up in a boxing family, how, how that is allowed to continue, I don't know. Yeah, and it's similar, you know, for rugby now, um, and Australian football and the rugby league in England and Australia, it's played in a few, but mostly there. The NFL has had its controversies earlier this year. Quarterback from the Miami Dolphins played on when he looked clearly concussed. He, he stood up and he took one, two steps, and then he staggered for three. Now, my, and you know what the problem is now? As, as people have become more aware of concussion, which is a good thing, no doubt, they see that sort of thing, and the spotlight is now brighter as a result. He, he stayed on. He kept playing. Game later, he suffered another concussion, which is even worse. And I've had the same player two weeks, one week apart, actually. It was less than a week. So they have theirs. We've had ours, Australia's scrum off Nick White in the Ireland game. And so quite clearly, the sports have to be better at, at figuring out how to stop that from happening, how to manage the player back into play and not push them through too fast. But the flip side of that, and this is the bit that's been a struggle to communicate, is that if you adopted the most conservative approach possible and you said, if you show any sign at all of a concussion, you're coming off, you would drive concussion diagnosis down. That's the, that's the thing that it's been quite frustrating for me to explain to people is that players want to play against better advi advice of medical experts and probably against their own better judgment. But they're incentivized to play right now. We'll play next week. And if I have to play next week, there's no way I'm telling my doctor I've got a blinding headache. And every time someone turns on the lights, I feel like, like, I feel like I'm going to black out. They're not going to tell the doctor if that confession or disclosure is going to cost them an opportunity to play. So there's so much work needs to be done around education and around getting them to understand that they should tell. But we're dealing with human beings here who aren't always making the wisest decisions for themselves in the long term because they've got a short-term incentive that overrides that and what we're trying to what, what i'm struggling with most in rugby right now is is changing things now given the long-term consequences like in other words we're dishing out red cards and fans are upset with us john on twitter is upset he's telling me it's unethical and disgraceful that i'm ruining rugby well yeah, but what's ruining rugby more? Is it the brain injuries or the red cards? Pick pick which one you want more of. And that's the that's the thing. It's like it's a it's a it's a real struggle to try and get people to accept the change we're trying to drive because it's costly. You know, it it, it it's un it's unpleasant. And I guess people fear that you're going to change the essence of the of some of the games involved as well. That it's going to threaten the integrity of games like rugby football and American Aussie rules. That sort of, that type of thing. Yeah, and the commercial side of the sport is 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 opposed to the red cards. I mean, there's no doubt they're saying it's driving fans away. It's turning TV viewership down. We don't want this, and so that's where the sport is now under pressure to say, okay, let's give red cards out, but make it 20 minutes, not permanent. All right. Well, yeah. what's the implication of that? It's a it's a lesser sanction. Now you you know you know that that tackle that you've just seen is two hundred times more likely to cause a head injury than a legal tackle, and you're going to lower the sanction for it. Fine, but what are you going to do to counteract the fact that you're now more lenient on brain injury? That's that's the question for these these organisations, and so it's a it's it's tough. I mean, it's not. The point I'm trying to make clumsily, I know, is that it's not as simple as just saying do X, get Y, because there's a second order consequence, a third order consequence. If you if you have a recognize and remove, no screening, nothing, you take him off and you say one month out, no player will ever tell you they're concussed because you're punishing them with one month out. 
So which do you prefer? Would you rather have some players coming back borderline early or would you rather not diagnose their concussions in the first place? Because it's a choice between those two. It's not, it's not simply keep him off for a month and everything will be peachy. It doesn't work like that in the real world. Yeah, it's a tough one. So my final question to both of you, and while you guys consider the answer to this question, I'm going to give you my view on it. I want you to think about your number one sporting moment for 2022. And uh, while you guys are thinking about that, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Ilya Kipchoge's uh, world marathon uh, win in Berlin this year. I, I, just looking at the, the speed, he, he did 21.02 kilometers an hour compared to 21.2 kilometers an hour, which he did when he did his 159 Ineos challenge. And I still maintain that at 37 years of age, um, he performed, he arguably produced the best marathon performance of his life. I mean, look at all of his career performances and the Olympic games and that sort of things. I still think that that was arguably one of the greatest, if not his greatest marathon performance and arguably the greatest marathon performance ever. And I'm including the Ineos 159, where I think all the contrived uh, methods, which they used in terms of pace setters and the shoes and those sort of things uh, really helped him get underneath that two hour mark. I think that that Berlin mark was something that uh, I don't think anybody's going to get close to it, maybe except him um, in the next uh, two or three years. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I still think it's a remarkable thing. Ross, I'm going to give you the second chance to have a go at your highlights of the year. So pure sporting highlight, not related at all to sports science for me was that stage 11 of the Tour de France when when uh, Team Team Yamba Visma threw Roglic into a WWE-style contest against Pogacar and Venegor and Roglic kept attacking him on the lower slopes of the second-to-last climb of the day. I remember on the Galibier, I think it was. And then eventually Venegor dropped Pogacar on the Col de Granon and won that stage. And that was pretty much the... the, the I mean, obviously, he went on and he wins the stage on Hartekam uh, later on in the tour but for me that was the I mean watching it just I was in disbelief it was it was it was like watching a computer game simulation to see <laughs> the two guys attack one after the next and then Pogaccia counter-attacking it'll be really interesting to see if they if they try the same thing in 2023 whether Pogaccia plays it a bit smarter than he may maybe did there or whether he just goes with his instinct again but that that was arguably the most entertaining cycling i've seen I, again <laughs> the cynicism aside it's just it was astonishing not what i expected you to say ross to be honest <laughs> you thought i'd say what i thought you'd say something about the football but we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll pass it on to sean to maybe give his best highlight because he's second, been on i have a second prize that i have to give him go on then. i'll get no i'll get to that in a moment so all right well let sean go for his first prize first then um it's it's i mean i i'll pick just things i was at um i mean i think the the Netherlands Argentina game at the World Cup was mm. extraordinary um, and and and, hor and horrific uh, in many ways because uh, for those who remember Netherlands are down last minute they suddenly score a brilliant free kick where they sort of pass the ball under the Argentinian net to force extra time uh, it's a game with sixteen I think seven sorry seventeen yellow cards and a red card um, there's a penalty shootout the Argentines are kicking kicking lumps of out of the Dutch players and Messi's making gestures at the Dutch coach but also I was about six seven eight meters away from Grant Wall when he collapsed as well so um just as we go into the start of extra time I hear a big noise I turn around and there's sort of journalists with just like jaws open and gas faces and they'd move lifting chairs up and you know 
we, we end up calling for medics and the like um and you know they're there probably three or four minutes later and and you know they're giving him cpr and sadly he doesn't make it and so just but, give just give this as an idea this is obviously one of um the uk's best known football writers us yeah yeah he's sorry US, yes. yeah grant wall he, he wrote for sports illustrated for many years before going freelance um he was well enough known that he did sort of the first big lebron james interview when lebron is 16 and sort of front cover of, of sports illustrated uh but yeah he's a sort of journalist presenter you know well-known us mm. uh, soccer voice and uh he was really felt i saw him the week before i was at an event and we were chatting away i didn't know he had a sort of bronchial cold at the time but i remember thinking he looks really fit and a friend of mine was telling him, you know, he was a good rower. I think he cycled and he, he was properly lean. He was like 48, but he looked, you know, physically much, much, much fitter and younger than that. So it was an absolute shock when, when that happened. So that was the sort of, that was, that's the moment that will live with me longest for, for both personal mm. and sporting reasons. Um, and I have a second as well, but um, I'll let Ross, Ross go first on that. Oh, and then Ross, you do your second. We'll go back to Sean for his second. Well, I mean, <laughs> and I'm cutting it off. There were two big World Cup finals this year. I mean, and, and other sports will disagree. There was a rugby league one. There were others as well. But the Women's Rugby World Cup final came down to a line-out throw on the line of the uh, the All Blacks at, in their home tournament by an England team that had been unbeaten for a record number of games. It was in the low 30s, 33, 34. And uh, with with basically time out, time expired, there was a line, England had a line-out throw and it was stolen by New Zealand on that line for them to win that World Cup. That, so that was... That was an incredible finish to a World Cup. If, if you have a, if you have your major sporting showpiece decided in the last seconds of the tournament in a game like that, where there was a red card in the 17th minute to England's Thompson, it took out the New Zealand winger Portia Woodman with a concussion. So it was a costly red card for both teams actually, but then it still went down to the very final play of the whole tournament. So that's quite remarkable. And then of course the, the men's final arguably is and i haven't watched as many as sean has i've only seen since 1990 but for sure that's the best final at a world cup that i can remember watching i'm just disappointed it went to penalties like we spoke <laughs> in our interview with ben lippleton on penalty shootouts that penalties are fun but it's a lousy way for for a whole tournament to be decided i don't <laughs> there's no there's no better way but if that if that final ends three two irrespective of whether it's messi's goal or mbappe's goal that wins it then for me it's iconic, but a penalty shootout made made it slightly deflating for me. That's why it's not my number one. Sean, your second one. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would go back to the uh, Kapil in, Indoor Stadium in Beijing, where this fifteen-year-old Russian, Kamilia Valieva, having uh, been cleared to compete after a drugs test, she stood on the ice. She's going for gold. She's she leads the competition after the first round. And then she does a free skate and then Ravel's Bolero, who certainly British eyes ears will remember from being the Torvald and Dean dance in the 84 Olympics. And, uh, you know, she falls twice, you know, and, and her, you know, she's bursting into tears. And then a coach is screaming at her, why did you let it go? Explain to me, why did you stop fighting? You let it go. Why? Mm. And then her teammate finishes second. Um, and then, and she's, um, and she's dancing to the um the the the, the Cruella Deville song, um, uh, which is I think a homage to her coach uh, Terry Tubitzi, who's this sort of large and life evil demonic figure, and just being there and you know, the, the, the 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 skater that finishes seconds is sort of screaming, "I'm never going to skate again." And Alexander Trusovalis is, 
you know, everyone has gone medal, everyone, but not me. I hate skating. I hate it. I hate this sport. I will never go out on the ice again. Never. I hate it. It's impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> you, you cannot do it this way. At her coach. It was just, it was just a remarkable night. Um, and another Russian ends up winning it. Um, and, and being there for the whole sort of week beforehand when this had built up and there was sort of a, 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 um, an English journalist colleague of mine had asked Valieva in, in the sort of practice area as she came through the mix zone, are you a, are you a, are you a cheat? Um, and like the Russian journalist had turned and like there was lots of pointing and lots of anger. And uh, it was just a remarkable, remarkable week. Being in the action was, was a lot of fun. They changed, I... the, they changed the age limit now, right? I think they were going to anyway, but I mean, what happened in Beijing would not have dissuaded them of that because it used to be 15 and I think it's now 17 or 18, right? Yeah, that's right. And the other thing is that, that again, I was chatting to um, skating types and know far more than I do when I was in Beijing. And they were saying this coach um, has a bunch of younger skaters that can all do the quad, which is sort of this super hard move. They're even younger. They're sort of 12, 13, 14. Year old. There is, there is, it's a bit like Kenyans, that a bunch of them all do 100, 130 miles a week. And then the very best, the ones that don't mm. fall down for injury, you know, make it. It's a bit like Russian skaters. There's a bunch of them in this sort of skating farm that that get through and they're brilliant at 12, 13, 14, but they, they tend to have injuries by 16, 17, 18. So the hope is um, by restricting the ages and maybe it changes things a bit, but I'm not sure, sure it will. Yeah, I don't know if it worked so much for gymnastics. I mean, we haven't even gone into it. And maybe it's something for 2023 is a, is a discussion on child athletes and safeguarding. And I mean, you think about the scandals in gymnastics, that was this year as well. I mean, you, we didn't even touch on it here. Some of the stuff that's gone on there, the bullying in the, even in UK sport, never mind others, other countries. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, uh, Professor Ross Tucker and Sean Ingle, the Chief Sports Writer for The Guardian. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure just uh, discussing this year. And I'm sure next year we're going to have plenty more to discuss. Of course, uh, lots to look forward to in 2023. But uh, this year has been uh, certainly a year of controversy, drama, and also the pure enjoyment of the sport. So thank you to all of you for listening to us. And uh, don't forget, you can also share on our uh, Twitter feed, SportsciPod. Let us know what you think about as the best sporting moment to 2022. Um, you can uh, tweet us on that and let us know if we've missed anything in this podcast. Ross and I have just got some final bit of homework to do. And that was, of course, the winners of our World Cup Qatar 2022 competition, which we had on the Super Brew channel, where we uh, put together um, the, I think, of the last 16 onwards. And then we had a bit of a competition. Quite a few of you joined that competition. And uh, our top three will be winning a premium subscription to Spotify, and we will get hold of you on those channels. So I'm going to leave it up to Ross to tell us who our top three winners were. Yeah, indeed. Thanks very much for playing, everyone. Um, I enjoyed it. It gave me more purpose <laughs> watching these games than I would have had otherwise. I think it's something we'll do again, actually. There's a World Cup in rugby next year and a World Cup of uh, World Chance Athletics. We'll figure out a way to, to do something around both those big events. In any event, our, our winners this, this time around, and it's just for patrons, so I'm going to give an honourable mention first to Simon Cahill, who's not a patron but is a riding mate of ours, and he entered via that access channel, and he ended up second overall on 17 and a half points. So he gets an honorable mention. However, <laughs> our podium of patrons are in third place, Neil Lafferty on 15 points. He was fifth overall in the competition, but third among patrons. Thanks also to Neil for sending me a good link about the doping stories in cycling and the tech versus doping debate. That was his 
contribution. In second place overall is Squire, aka Davi Esterhazen, who's a South African and who supports Spain. He came up in a last show. He came second overall, so congratulations. And then Leanne Spurdens, who's our newest patron as of last night, I think, in part, <laughs> this prize, is our overall winner. And I can tell you, is not a football fan, but went with gut feel and fandom for France mainly. Unfortunately, didn't turn out well in the final. I would like to also let you know that your joint host of this podcast ended up 14th after forgetting to submit his final picks. Yes, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a good mix because I have it a bit with some of my uh, friends that I play poker with and I chose Argentina, France as our top two. So if I'd actually played and hadn't forgotten to include the two, I might have been in the top 10, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, you get bragging rights with your poker group. That's for Ross, sure. so you were fairly high up there, weren't you, in the end? Yeah, I ended up fourth overall in the end. I Not was very good at the start, but I had a good I had a good quarterfinals. So that Not helped bad. me out. But in any event, bragging rights to the patrons go to Leanne, Darby, and Neil. So thank you very much. You're we'll be in touch via patron to get you those vouchers. Thanks for playing and well done. So have Merry Christmas and a happy new year to all of our patrons and all of our listeners. And well done to our winners. And we'll see you back uh, probably midway through January 2023 for our fifth season of the science of sport podcast goodbye for now thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports ipod and on instagram at science of sport podcast up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com